Amen. This morning, if you have your Bible, your device, however you read God's Word, this morning we're going to look again to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. And over the past couple of weeks, we've just been studying God's Word as we get ready for revival. And I've told you this, but really, revival is nothing more than asking God to show up. That's all revival is. Revival is just the manifest presence of God. And that word manifest just means obvious. That's all it means. The obvious presence of God. So in a few weeks, that's what I'm praying for. But I'm praying that it won't take August the 18th and a date on a calendar and a new preacher, new worship, whatever we do. I pray it won't take that. I pray it would just be a people who are submitted to God to experience Him and all that He wants to do in our lives and in your life. So over the past few weeks, we've looked at some ingredients to revival, and that's really as simple as that. If you bake a cake or a pie, you have to have certain ingredients in that cake or pie for it to turn out right. And the same is going to be true for revival on August the 18th, that we have to put certain things in to get certain things out. And So we've been looking at some of those ingredients over the past few weeks, and this morning we're going to look at the most important ingredient to revival. And that's what we just sang about, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. This morning, we're going to once again look at Acts chapter 2, where we see a revival that happens in the early church because they experience God. So this morning, that's what I'm praying for this place, that we would just experience God. Back in the spring, I got to be a part of something, an opportunity, I guess, to do something that I thought was going to be pretty fun. I got to rappel off the Trustmark building in downtown Tuscaloosa. And so that was part of an event for Youth for Christ. And when they asked me to do that back in January, it really didn't seem that big a deal. But as it got closer and closer to April, and every time I would drive downtown and I would look at that building, that building got a lot taller every time I drove by it. And then finally the day came for the event, and I drove downtown, and I got to the bottom of the Trustmark building, and I looked up, and that building was a whole lot taller that day than it was any day that I'd looked at it before. And so I stood there for a few minutes, and I got my, I guess I got my, strength up. I don't know what I got up, but I said, I can do this. And so I walked into the building and they had a little orientation session where they harnessed you up and put everything on you needed to rappel down. And so then we got in the elevator and we rode all the way to the top of the building. And the elevator comes out right in the center of the building. And so you get out on the center of the building. And in the center of the building, it's a beautiful view because you can see the river all the way up and down the river. You can see the stadium and the campus. It's a beautiful view of Tuscaloosa. But the problem is you get closer to the edge of that building, the view starts to change because you don't look out over the horizon. You start to look down at the ground is what you start looking. And as I was walking out, all I saw was one little rope. And that one little rope was the only thing that was going to hold me up from falling 15 stories to the ground. And so I started thinking about that rope, things I never thought about that rope. But I started wondering not only who tied that rope to that building, but I wondered who made that rope in the first place. And then I started thinking, well, I wonder if the guy that made this rope was drunk the night before he made this rope. I don't know who the guy was that made this rope, but all these stupid thoughts start going through your mind. And so I'm going closer and closer to the edge of the building, and we get up right before the building, and they're going to tell us how to fall off the building or repel down the building, but for me it was falling. And so here's what they said to do. They said, all you have to do, the easiest way to do this so that you don't have to worry about it, is you just get to the edge of the building, and you let half of your feet hang onto the building, and half of your feet hang off the building. And then all you have to do is just lay back. Just lay back, and the rope will catch you. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? That, I mean, that is really easy said. But I'm telling you, when you're standing on top of that building, and you have to fall back, it ain't as easy as it is saying it. 
And so it was almost my turn, and the guy that was going right before me, and if I told you his name, most of you would know him, but the guy going right before me, he was standing there with half feet on, half feet off, and he was just trying to muster up the nerve to fall back. And then all of a sudden, he said, nope, not doing it. So he unhooked, and he walked off, and now it's my turn. So that's good. And so I let them harness me up, and they hooked me up to that rope, and I stuck my feet right there on the edge of that building, just trying to muster up enough courage to fall off. And as I thought about that event, I truly believe with all my heart, that's right where we are as a church. We're teetering right on the edge. And we're teetering on whether we will experience God or not. Because I believe with all my heart, most of you in this room have truly experienced God and you have seen God move in your life or in others' lives and you've seen miracles and you've seen things happen that you can't explain. But for whatever reason, we just won't lie back and let go and let God catch us. We just hang on. Because in our minds, we've never done that before. We've never done that that way before. And the traditions and our experience tells us, don't fall back. And I've tried to think in my mind, why as a people and as a church, will we not just do what the Bible says and just let go and let God take over? Why won't we do it? And I'm sure there's many reasons. But I know two of them for sure. Now one of them is probably the most obvious. You are in a Baptist church. And I grew up in a Baptist church, and I've always been in a Baptist church, and I'm a Baptist preacher. And all I've heard all my life, this is what I've heard all my life, boy, as a Baptist, we stay true to the Word of God. And the Word of God is the most important thing in our lives. It's the most important thing in our church. And we've got to stand on the Word of God, because this is the Word of God. And it's the living, breathing Word of God. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it will not return void. And all of that is true. Amen? And I will never compromise the Word of God. But here's the problem. Have you ever wondered why this is the Word of God? What makes this book, just a book in my hand, what makes this book the Word of God? I mean, all this is is words on a page, right? That's all it is. So what makes this the Word of God? Well, I'll tell you what makes it the Word of God. The Holy Spirit makes this the Word of God. The Holy Spirit makes this literally the breath of God. The Holy Spirit makes this the living Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, so that it will not return void. Without the Holy Spirit, this is just a book. It might as well be an encyclopedia. If you don't believe me, take it to someone who doesn't believe in the Spirit of God and won't let the Spirit of God lead them and tell them to read this book. What are they going to read it as? A history book. Because it's a book. But with the Holy Spirit of God, everything about this book changes. Everything about this book changes. And it will change you if you allow the Holy Spirit of God to lead you into truth. All my life I've heard, if we ever want to experience what the early church experienced, we just got to return to the Word. Listen to me, I preach the Word of God every week, and I have never experienced what the early church has experienced. Have you? Do you know why? Do you know one of the things the early church didn't have? They didn't have this. But what did they have? The Holy Spirit of God. And they saw signs and miracles and wonders. And they did things that no one on this earth can explain. 
Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God, filled them and they worked in power. So what do we do? Well, we have what the early church didn't have. We have the Word of God plus the same thing they did have, the Holy Spirit of God. And if we would combine those two things, we would be an unstoppable force. And we would do exactly what Jesus says we can do in John 14. In John 14, 12, Jesus says, Anyone who believes in me will do the same things I have done and even greater things. We would be able to do that with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. But for whatever reason, we'll cling to this. But we run from that. Another reason. We don't experience revival. We don't experience the presence of God like the early church. It's because we're not desperate for the spirit of God. The presence of God. We're not desperate for revival like the early church. I mean we're fine with the way things are. They're pretty good. We get to come, we get to worship, we get to do the things we want to do. It really doesn't affect our lives because the next day we'll go to work just like we always go to work. We'll go to school just like we always go to school. We'll drive the car we want to drive, live in the house we want to live in, whatever, blah, blah, blah. We just go on with life just the way it is. And if you read what happens when God takes control and you fall back and let Him have it, things change. I'm telling you, a lot of things change. Not only in your life, but in this church. And we don't like that. So we're not desperate for God. Yesterday, in the United States, there were two mass shootings. One in El Paso, Texas, one in Dayton, Ohio. 26 people died yesterday. You might have heard about it, you might not have heard about it. Seems to me mass shootings just another news item today. But I want to ask you a question. If you did hear about it, how did you pray for it? Did you even stop to pray? Did you pray for the families? Did you pray for a move of God? Did you pray that this would change our nations? Did you even stop to pray? Let me ask you this. What if while you were sitting right there, your son or your daughter or your grandchild or someone you love texted you or they called you and they said, I am in Walmart right now and two aisles over from me someone is shooting and killing people. How would that change your prayer life? I bet it would change it. I bet you would pray like you've never prayed before. You would get on your knees and get on your face and you would pray. Why does it take something like that for us to pray? Why? You realize the Bible says that there is someone who wants to kill, steal, and destroy your children. That's what the Word of God says. But we look as prayer as like an inconvenience rather than a gift from God. You say, oh, no, we don't. Yes, you do. If you ever want to kill a service, I can tell you as a pastor how to kill a service. Just tell people you're going to pray and no one will show up. Because we're not desperate for God. read the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about an experience in his life where he didn't know how he was going to survive. And I, just want, I want you to hear it. Just listen to what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says this. He says, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. We thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result... 
we stop relying on ourselves and we learn to rely on God who raises the dead. Paul figured out that he should stop relying on himself and he should start relying on God. The early church figured that out. Go read about the early church. There were only 120 of them. But before the Holy Spirit of God, they tried to rely on themselves. Go read about the life of Peter. Go read what happened to Peter the night before Jesus Christ was crucified. Just earlier, he said, Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll go to death with you. Well, the night that Jesus was arrested, you know what he did? He denied him three times, then he ran away. Then even after Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he saw Jesus face to face, he decided that he was going to leave the ministry and leave his calling as an apostle. And he went back to Galilee and he went back to fishing. He was relying on himself. But then read about him when the Holy Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2. He becomes the greatest preacher in the world. What was the difference? Nothing changed in Peter except the Holy Spirit of God. God's presence filling him and moving in him and changing him. It was the presence of God. And it's true for all the apostles and disciples and the early church. They They went from doubters to flaming missionaries willing to die for Jesus. How many of you in this room are willing to die for Jesus? I mean, seriously. Oh, it sounds good, and you probably have said it, but would you really do it? If someone was standing here with a gun to your head and say, renounce Jesus and live, or confess Him and die, what would you do? Every disciple, every apostle went to their death because of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the presence of God. So I just want you to see in God's word in Acts chapter 2. A difference the Holy Spirit of God makes. So I'm just going to read a few verses. So look there in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is what Luke says there. He says on the day of Pentecost. All believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, If you read what happened up until this point, the early church, 120 believers, that's all the early church that existed on the earth before the day of Pentecost. For 10 days they had been meeting together in one place and they had been praying. For ten straight days, all they did were pray. And then God sent the Holy Spirit, His presence that filled that room. And they stood up and they started speaking in languages that they didn't even know what they were saying. But why were they speaking in languages? Because later you hear all the languages they were speaking. All the people from all around the world that were there on the day of Pentecost, these believers were speaking the gospel in their language. They had never had ESL, English as a second language, or Spanish as a second language. They had the Holy Spirit of God. And they were speaking in tongues or languages that they didn't know But those people who heard them heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there were were people there that started ridiculing the disciples and the followers of the early church. And they said, oh, those people are drunk. How else could they be speaking like that? And Peter stood up and said, they're not drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he stood up and he preaches one of the greatest sermons in all the Bible. That's what most of Acts chapter 2 is about. He preaches about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that all the people were there. Their hearts were pierced by the words that Peter spoke. And they asked the question, what do we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you will receive the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized, 3,000 of them, that very day. 
And this is what it goes on to say about the church. Look down to verse 42. It says, And all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So what happens when the Holy Spirit of God shows up? That's what happens. People's lives are changed. But not only people's lives who don't know Jesus Christ are changed, but those who know Him. The church is changed. And that's what I'm praying for in this place, that we will be changed. And so I just want you to see three simple things that happened to the church there in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came. The first thing that happened is the Holy Spirit brought them life. He brought life. Look at verse 1 there again in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they are all together in one place. Then verse 2 says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now when we read that verse in English, we miss everything that Luke was trying to say when he wrote these verses almost 2,000 years ago. Because we don't understand the language in which he wrote it. We don't understand the ancient languages. Our Bible is written primarily in Hebrew and primarily the New Testament in Greek. And the word that Luke uses here for that word wind or mighty rushing wind in Hebrew is the word ruach. You have to take a deep breath to say it. It's ruach is how it, and it's a deep guttural sound. The Greek word there is pneuma, and it has the exact same meaning as the word ruach in the Hebrew. Now that word has three interchangeable meanings, and they are interchangeable. The word ruah can mean wind, like we read about here in English, but it doesn't just mean wind. It can mean breath, or it can mean spirit. Now it's much like the way I would stand here, and I would say either the United States, or I would say America. If I said America, or I said the United States, those words are interchangeable, right? You would know exactly what I was talking about, and I could use those words in a sentence, and you would not know the difference. The same is true for that word ruah, or pneuma, in the New Testament. When Luke uses it here, everyone would know the significance that this is not talking about a mighty windstorm. This is talking about the Spirit of God, or literally the very breath of God. Now, to understand that, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1. This is what Genesis 1-1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That word spirit in Genesis 1-2 is the same word, ruah. So in our mind, when we're thinking about God creating the earth, it's almost like we think of the Spirit of God as hovering over this earth like a dove or an eagle flying until God creates. But that's not what the Bible is saying here. What God is saying here in Genesis 1-1 is literally the breath of God was covering the earth. How do I know that? Well, what does John 1 say? In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then later on it says the Word spoke everything into existence. What happens if you speak a word? What do you have to do? Do you not have to breathe? I can't speak without breathing. That's why in Psalm 33, 
The Bible says this, the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. But then it goes on to say, He breathed the word and the stars were born. He breathed the word. And everything was created by God's breath. That's why in Genesis 2-7, when God formed us from the dust of the ground, what did He do? And in Genesis 2-7, He breathed life into our nostrils. The Spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God came into us and gave us life. Go to the New Testament in John 3. In John 3, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he's trying to explain to Nicodemus what salvation is. And he says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand. How can I be born again? I've already been born. How can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus explains to him, you have to be born again. And this is what the word, we don't catch it in English, but the word he uses means this. You have to be born again just like before. So he's pointing back to Genesis 2-7. You have to be born again just like before. You have to receive the breath of God which gave you life. But now when you're born again, it gives you spiritual life. And it literally raises you from the dead. It takes you from your trespasses, from your sins, and brings you up to life. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2. The spirit, the breath of God comes and gives the church new life. And that's what we need in this church. I'm telling you, the most significant event in the church, not the early church, not the church today, but the church is the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. That is what changed them, and that's what gave them the power to do everything they did. Listen, if you go read the book of Acts, you can watch Peter, and he is walking down the street, and all he does is let his shadow fall on people, and they are healed of sicknesses. How is that possible? Because of the Spirit of God. That's how it's possible. Because the Holy Spirit came and He brought life. You say, are you sure that's what it's talking about? I'm positive that's what it's talking about. You read Acts chapter 2. Peter quotes in his sermon a prophet named Joel. And in Joel's day, Joel says that in the last days, God will pour out His Spirit on all people. Peter quotes that. Because Peter truly believed that he was living in the last days. But listen, Peter was not living in the last days. He was living in the beginning of the last days, but we're living in the end of the last days. And just like the church started with God pouring out His Spirit and a harvest happening, guess what's going to happen in the last days? God is going to pour out His Spirit according to the prophet Joel, and He's going to receive a harvest according to Matthew 24, where He says, the world will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the nations will believe in Me. Guess what? I want to be a part of God pouring out His Spirit. And seeing the nations come to Him. Because that's what He called us to do. But it will never happen unless we receive life and power through the breath of God. Through the Spirit of God. But that's exactly what He brings. He brings life. But not only does He bring that. Another thing He brings is He brings unity. He unifies us as one body of one group of believers. Look at verse 1 again of Acts chapter 2. It says, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers. All of them, not some of them. All of the believers were meeting together in one place. The word there Luke uses means with one purpose. That's why the King James, it translates it, it says they were all together with one accord. That means that they all had the same heart, they all had the same mind, they all had the same spirit. And what was that heart, mind, and spirit? It was to glorify Jesus Christ and to give their lives to Jesus Christ for whatever He told them to do. That's why Luke goes on in verse 44 to say that all believers were together and they had all things in common. 
They sold their possessions, their goods, they gave to anyone in need. And then he also says, and they ate together and they shared meals together. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Baptist, we got that one down. We got to worry about that one. Move on to the next point. But it wasn't talking about the fellowship potluck dinner. That's not what Luke's talking about here because they didn't have fellowships or potluck dinners. They're talking about, Luke's talking about they live life together. They met in each other's homes and they ate supper together. And they shared everything they had. Because the only thing that the early church wanted to do was to glorify Jesus Christ. It wasn't about the money they could make. It wasn't about the houses they could live in or the cars they could drive. How do I know? Because they were giving all that junk away. All they cared about was the glory that Jesus could receive so that people could know Him and be changed by Him forever. That's what God wants in our church. He wants us to be unified. Jesus says in John 14 that they will know me and that God sent me If the church is one. Just like I and the Father are one. Satan's one goal for this church. And only goal for this church. Is to divide us. Because if he divides us. Just little splinters. Just little factions. Not big ones like over great things of theology. Or anything like that. But just little things. Like arguing and yanning and pickpacking. And gossiping. Whatever it is. If he divides us he knows he wins. Because guess what the world does not want. They don't want more of that. Because if you go outside the walls of this church, guess what the world is? It is broken, and it is fractured, and it is splintered, and it is divided. Just watch the news. This place should be the exact opposite of that. It should be a place, just like God, where we pour out grace and love and forgiveness, and we have one spirit and one mind and one accord, and that is the glory of Jesus Christ. And if we would live that way, guess what? People would flock into this place. Because they desire that. They long for that. Because God created them for that type of fellowship. And that type of oneness. And that type of unity. And it can only be found in a church with one spirit. You might think. That your negative attitude. Or your griping. Or your complaining. Isn't that big a deal. But I'm telling you eternally. It is a huge deal. Because you are a pawn of Satan. And if you can't say something good, keep your mouth shut. Listen, I'm the pastor of this church. I don't like everything that goes on in this church. Guess why? Because this church ain't perfect. There ain't a church that's perfect. But if we would show more love, and if we would pour out grace like God did to us, then we could unite with one purpose. And God will use us in ways that we can never fathom. Because unity invites the Holy Spirit of God into this place. I'm telling you, the church in America, especially the modern day church, has made a grave mistake. And I fall into this. Because one of the things we've done as the church is we've tried to make the church welcoming to guests. And those new people who've never been here. And we do everything we can to welcome them. But the problem in doing so is we forgot to welcome God. I don't care. It doesn't matter who shows up here if God's not here. 
need to welcome God back in this place. Let me tell you how to do it. The final thing the Holy Spirit brings. He brings worship. That's what he brings. Verse 43. The Bible says of the early church, a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many signs and wonders. Now look at that verse carefully. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And then the apostles performed many signs and wonders. Not before or after. When's the last time you've walked out of these doors and you walked away in a deep sense of awe because you stood in the presence of God and He ministered to you and did things that you could not even fathom? When is the last time? That's what happened to the early church. Because the early church worshipped. They worshipped. God created you to worship. In Luke 19.40, Jesus says, And I tell you, if these are silent, talking about the believers or the people there in the city, if these are silent, then the stones will cry out. Why will the stones cry out? Because God deserves worship. And if we won't do it, He will find something that will. So that is what we are to do in this place. It is to worship God. Please hear me. And I'll try to be kind, but... When you come into the walls of this sanctuary, you are not here to be entertained. You are not here to see a performance. You are here to worship. And I don't care how hot it is in here. I don't care how cold it is in here. I don't care if somebody's in your seat or if your seat's not comfortable. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is God deserves our worship. And you come into this place to worship him, because that's what you were created to do. That's what the early church did. Verse 46, they worshiped together at the temple each day. If you wondered why they worshiped every day, they didn't worship like us just on Sundays. Every day they went to the temple together and worshiped. Why? Because they were in awe of God. That's why. Because they stood in his presence, they were changed forever, and they didn't want anything else. They just wanted God. That's all they wanted. And so they went to the temple each day to worship. This week in my quiet time, I was reading out of the book of 1 Samuel. If you read 1 Samuel, you'll read about a young boy whose mom set him apart for God. She dedicated him to God and took him to the temple to work for God. And I want you to see what it says about this little boy, Samuel. 1 Samuel 3, this is what verse 1 says. It says, now the boy, Samuel was ministering to the Lord, not to other people. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Eli was the priest. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Verse 2, at the time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the presence of God. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Verse 4. Then the Lord called out to Samuel and Samuel said, here am I. Now why did God speak to Samuel in a day when the word of the Lord was rare? Now why was the word of the Lord rare? Because 
There were plenty of religious activity in Samuel's day. Go read about the priests. Go read about Eli and his sons. They were ministering, but they were ministering to themselves. There was plenty of religious activity. But there was no one ministering to the Lord except for a young boy named Samuel. And who did God speak to? Samuel. The Lord called out. What in the world does it mean when it says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord? i tell you what it means. It means he was worshiping Him. That is how we minister to God. We worship Him. God ministers to us in thousands and thousands of different ways. But the one way we minister to Him is through our worship. We worship Him. We give Him the praise and honor He deserves. Listen to Psalm 100. Psalm 100 says, shout to joy with the Lord all the earth. When's the last time you shouted with joy to the Lord? Verse 2, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Go into His courts with praise. Give Him thanks and give Him praise. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and ever. And His faithfulness continues to each and every generation. When is the last time we worship God according to the word of Psalm 100? Oh, if we want to hear a word from God, if we want to experience His presence, just like Samuel, that little boy, we need to minister to the Lord. And God will show up, and God will move, and He will do exactly what His word says. The only question that remains is how can we see this church filled with the Spirit of God? The answer to that's easy. If you want a spirit-filled church, all you have to do is fill it with spirit-filled Christians. That's the hard part. Now, I wish I could give you a prayer to pray. I wish I could give you a formula to follow. I wish I could give you something to do so that you would be a spirit-filled Christian on fire for God. But I know this. You will never, ever be a spirit-filled Christian unless you are desperate for God. If you have no need for the Holy Spirit, you will find a way to live without Him. And that's what most of us do every day of our lives. But when we're desperate, when we're hungry, that's when we'll experience God. But the only way I know to start that process is to pray. That's what the early church did. For ten straight days, they prayed. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. So bow your heads. Let's just pray, Lord. We need you. And we only need you. Lord, I pray that you would come into this place. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with your breath. Lord, breathe new life into us. So that your breath fills our lungs. And Lord, I pray that your breath would oxygenate the cells of our body. And go to every crevice and every corner. So that we would simply be filled with you. 
And Lord, as you fill your people, fill this place. Lord, let us hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. As you come. Lord, let us stand in awe. And let us see miracles. As we give you glory. So Lord, we just pray for you to move. Lord, help us. Just fall off that edge. And Lord, catch us. We give you these moments. And we pray for them in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And this morning, as we close, we're just going to close with a time for you to respond, for a time for you to pray. So our praise band, they're going to sing, they're going to lead us in worship. But what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm just going to ask you to stand to your feet and bow your heads and pray. And if you want to come to this altar and pray and get on your face before God, come to this altar and pray and get on your face before God and meet Him here. If you need prayer, if you need someone to pray for you, if you're suffering or sick, whatever it is, whatever the Bible calls you to do, come, we'll pray for you. If you need Jesus in this place, come, we'll tell you about Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. This morning, most of you just need to pray because most of you need new life. Most of you have experienced life when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you remember what that was like. But for whatever reason, you've grown cold. What does Paul say? We stopped relying on ourselves and started relying on the power of God who raises the dead. Why does he just put that in as a caveat to that verse? Because that's what God does. He raises the dead. And he can raise you back to new life. But it's only through his spirit. So I'm just going to ask you to stand to your feet. Bow your head. And pray. And allow God to move.